Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. For better or for worse, whether we think it's great for our democracy or terrible for our democracy, many, many people do not sort through the particulars of a candidate's policy proposals before selecting their preferred candidate, okay? Like, it just, it's not how it works. (laughs) This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. If your heads are spinning, welcome to the Pantsuit Politics table, where we're going to try to sort out everything that has occurred during a truly bizarre week. Before we get into the news, what's happening with Syria, the Democratic debate, we are going to start with an important reminder from Claire, who sent us a note that the third Friday of October has been National Mammography Day since 1993. A mammogram saved Claire's life, and she wanted to share her story so that we can mark this important day and remind all of the women in our audience to stay up to date on your mammograms. We also want to remind you that you can come see us live this Saturday tomorrow in Washington, D.C. for the Nuance Nation tour. And then in early November in Dallas, Texas, you can check the show notes to get your tickets for those. Sarah, it's been a lot this week. I think what you meant to say, it's been a lot this Wednesday. (laughs) The week was a lot. And then Wednesday just, I don't, 
I don't even know what happened. Was the moon in retrograde? Mars and what goes in retrograde that messes everything up? Isn't Whatever it, it was. Isn't it Mercury? Mercury. Mercury. That's what happened. That's what happened. Let's begin by saying how very sad we are to learn of what feels like a really sudden loss. Representative Elijah Cummings, who was actively chairing the House Oversight and Reform Committee, he'd had some busy days recently, passed away at the age of 68 from what is being described as complications from long-term health issues. Elijah Cummings has been in public service since the 1980s. He has served Maryland's 7th District in Congress since 1996. He is a civil rights champion, beloved member of Congress. And this is just a tremendous loss for the entire country. I loved this quote from Dr. Maya Rockmore Cummings. He worked until his last breath because he believed our democracy was the highest and best expression of our collective humanity and that our nation's diversity was our promise, not our problem. Mm. I know a lot of people are grieving the loss of Representative Cummings and our thoughts are with them and for our nation because he held such an important position in the government and will truly be missed. So let's hop all the way across the pond to big developments with Brexit before we come back to President Trump's truly bananas 1,000th day in office. Okay, so Boris and the EU seem to have reached some sort of Brexit deal. Now, we don't know any of the details, and he still has to get it approved by Parliament, which includes Northern Ireland, Labor. So he's not done But I am encouraged because uh, hard Brexit is a terrible idea, and hopefully this deal will be approved or they'll find some other solution. But his insistence on uh, hard Brexit was making me nervous, so I'm at least encouraged by both parties saying we've reached an agreement. Yeah, I think that's a testament to the power of the calendar. When you start to come up on a deadline that is an immovable deadline, it really brings everybody to the table in a different way. So I'm very curious to see the details of this deal and to learn how the reaction from Parliament is going to unfold. Okay, well, we've had President Trump for a thousand days now. Let's just all take a minute there. A thousand days of President Trump. We've It's felt longer. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, loud. And he he made his he he lived in a big way on his thousandth day. Oh my lord, he did. Well, okay. Let's start with his letter to President Erdogan of Turkey, which hit the internet and everyone thought it was a fake. And I really don't think we should talk about it. I think we should just read it. Should I just read it, Beth? I think you should just read it. Okay. Let's work out a good deal. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, and I will. I've already given you a little sample with respect to Pastor Brunson. I have worked hard to solve some of your problems. Don't let the world down. You can make a great deal. General Marslom is willing to negotiate with you, and he is willing to make concessions that they would never have made in the past. I am confidentially enclosing a copy of his letter to me just received. History will look upon you favorably if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. 
Don't be a fool. I will call you later. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do except for laugh through your tears at the embarrassment that this letter is. When I was a pretty new lawyer and would do document review, I would form very strong opinions about people based on punctuation and their communications. And so I do need everybody to do me a favor and go look at this letter with your own eyes so, many so that you points. can see all the exclamation points. It's just so it's many. important to me that you see how it's punctuated because, Sarah, your reading was fantastic. And I Thank also you. think that visual is important. I mean, is this the art of the deal? Is this what we're all supposed to be impressed with? Is in the complicated, diplomatic emergency we are all facing in northern Syria with people being slaughtered, we're all supposed to be hopeful in the face of a few exclamation points and give me a call? I swear to God. The situation is so troubling because he has multiple times in front of many cameras said, I knew what Turkey was going to do. President Erdogan has been wanting to do this forever. He's told me many times. I knew what was going to happen. It is not our problem. It is not our border. The Kurds are scarier than ISIS, a statement that I would be hard-pressed to find a single foreign policy expert agreeing with, right? So our own military is bombing where they stayed in the region because they're exiting in such a chaotic way and they don't want our equipment falling into the wrong hands. And we don't even know whose hands those are at this point. Did you read about how Russia was like bringing cameras in and filming like our pantries of stuff left behind? So disturbing. If Billy Joel were here, he would say, we definitely started this fire. We did. This is our fault. And then he is just wiping his hands of it and writing a letter saying, you need to fix this, President of Turkey. And you can almost imagine a wink emoji being included because Mm -hmm. he is not serious about making any progress here. And I'm sorry, I I made this point before, but I'm just not impressed by our members of Congress passing sanctions. I don't think sanctions do it here. And I don't Mm -hmm. know what the right answer is now because all signs point to... What would become quickly a war with some of the most contentious players on earth being involved. And it's just it is deeply disturbing. I mean, I think that the really difficult reality is the diplomatic needle threading that was happening before we pulled our troops out cannot be recreated. It was a very delicate situation, and he blew it up, and we cannot go back and put it the way it was. We just can't. And so now people are losing their lives. We handed a giant gift to both Syria and their war criminal president and to Russia. That's the reality we face right now. We even had a bipartisan resolution opposing the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria in the House. Bipartisan. That's how bad it is. And you just can't undo it with a letter. You can't just look at Turkey and say, oh, you know what? You have been waiting and waiting and waiting to be able to go after the Kurds in this way because you see them as a terrorist organization. So... 
Now we want you to just stop this incredibly popular position in Turkey, by the way, and sit down at the table with this organization that you think is a terrorist organization. Come on. It's not going to happen. It's too late. I think another reality is that even if Donald Trump, say this afternoon, took some deep breaths and thought, I really believe this. I would like to fix it. I don't think that he can. No. When I think about Justice Ginsburg answering a question about how this moment in history will be perceived and saying it's an aberration, it feels to me on the global stage like it is incumbent on us as Americans to demonstrate that in a big way in our next election. Mm-hmm. Because we are going to have to have a whole new cast of characters leading our foreign policy to try to establish any sense of credibility on the global stage after the complete catastrophe that we've created here. I think we were in very bad state shape with the world before this, but this has been just by any objective measure a nightmare. And look, I would never, ever describe myself as a hawk. I would not do that. However, Iran and Syria and Russia and everybody else in the Middle East now knows that when it comes to shows of strength and force in the Middle East and really anywhere else, President Trump is all talk. He has illustrated that over and over and over again. So they know that they can push and push and push because he wants out of these forever wars. He doesn't want to have troops anywhere. He's going to pull out troops even when it arguably increases the risk of violence. And so we're in an incredibly weak position because these players many that are bad actors with a lot of military strength, know that we will not stop them. And so the entire region, the entire globe, doesn't have any sort of assurance that the United States, for all its faults, which has been a global actor for decades since World War II, will do anything to stop bad actors. I read an article in Foreign Policy that we'll link to in the show notes that basically says that his, you know, he wants to abandon the strength of allies that we've built for since World War II for the law of the jungle. And that's what it feels like right now. It's just the law of the jungle. Yeah. Because we are not doing anything. I don't think that you have to describe yourself as a hawk to be willing to read the global room. I think the approach to foreign policy can never be purist because it depends so much on the leadership of other countries. I am certain that Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron have different philosophies than what plays out when the global stage looks like Putin, Erdogan, Trump, Boris Johnson, right? You have to adapt to who else is at that table with you. And so I think, though, the conversation that the president and Senator Paul are pushing about this completely ignores the reality of the world. Like, our our foreign policy does not get established based on 
what we wish were the case. Most of us would be pacifist if that were the case, right? You right. know, you you just have to bring a level of pragmatism about how people are going to respond to your actions to these things. And he has just been incapable or unwilling to do that. So you would be right to say, man, that letter on the thousandth day, you're right. It really is bananas. And then I would encourage you to sit down and get comfortable because we are not even done. We are not even close to done with the crazy that went down on Wednesday. There was a meeting at the White House. The president said somebody wanted it and he went along with it. The White House did schedule it with congressional leadership. Of course, the intelligence committees were not invited because why would they be? We're only talking about national security. But the president is angry at Adam Schiff. And so he was not invited. So in the meeting, not sure exactly how we got here, but the president insulted General Mattis, talked about how he personally had captured ISIS much faster than anyone else could have, said that Nancy Pelosi was a third-rate politician. And then when Nancy Pelosi stood up to leave, as she was walking out, said, see you at the polls. And I have to tell you that aside from the what will become an iconic image of Nancy Pelosi standing up and pointing across the table at him, I'm just ashamed of absolutely Mm -hmm. everything that has been reported about this meeting. It is so gross. I mean, and she she basically came out and said, we witnessed a meltdown. I continue to pray for him. And then he got on Twitter and, you, you know, just verbal diarrhea like just she's sick in the head or she hates our country and we really need to pray for her and just on and on and on i am so disturbed at the total and complete lack of respect for the co-equal branch of government and just other human beings, like even if she wasn't the speaker, I should—I don't know why. I don't know why I should be in any way, shape or form disgusted or surprised. He's shown nothing but his ability to to treat other human beings, particularly women, as less than deserving of basic human dignity. But man, the depths to which he is willing to sink So on top of his tweets, we are recording on Thursday. He has a rally tonight in Texas. I don't even want to think about what he's going to say during this rally. I don't even want to think about it. What bothers me more than anything with him, because I'm just I'm past it with him, is the support that he's receiving from people like Steve Scalise, from Ronnie McDaniel. I mean, there are so many people at this point who are looking at what is just so clearly wrong and saying it's not what you think and and using this tactic of. The House is proceeding in a Soviet-style way, which is just rich on so many levels. Mm-hmm. But it's it's also dangerous, you know. And I think the the massive disappointment for me of the past four years has not even been Donald Trump, who just is what he is, but mm-hmm. all of the people who have allowed him 
to continue to be what he is and and who have expanded his power by explaining it away. Okay, so again, you would be correct to think, oh, yikes, what a day. I can't take much more of Donald Trump's bad behavior. And then we would say, we have not even caught you up yet on the impeachment inquiry and the testimony coming from Fiona Hill, National Security Advisor on Russia and Europe, George Kent, Deputy Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, and Michael McKinley, Senior Advisor to the Secretary of State. Spoiler alert, it's not great. As we are recording, Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, who is quoted in some of those text messages, is in front of Congress. We expect Bill Taylor to testify next Tuesday. Bill Taylor is the person who sent the text message saying, seems crazy to me to withhold security assistance to help with a political campaign. And then Sondland is the person who responded, I believe that you are misinterpreting the president, who has been clear that there are no quid pro quos of any kind. Let's not text about this anymore. Fiona Hill painted a picture of complete disarray around national security issues. She talked about how John Bolton advised her to go to counsel to report concerns about Giuliani. I mean, just let's just pause on that for a minute. Let's just take a beat and think about that we are listening to testimony from the State Department that makes John Bolton... Look like the good cowboy in this scenario. George Kent's testimony also cemented what I think has just become the clear story that's emerging. You know, the the clear story that's emerging is the president's phone call with Zelensky was completely in character with what Rudy Mm -hmm. Giuliani had been pushing behind the scenes with the president and very much in front of the scene in Ukraine that sidelined career State Department officials who actually understood the dynamics in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and created what those officials are describing as a shadow foreign policy operation aided in that process by Gordon Sondland, Kurt Volker, and Secretary Rick Perry. Who called themselves the Three Amigos. I mean, I mean... Let me just, you, you, I love your very careful wording of what's happening. I would just say, in a less careful way, that they were trying to make the State Department another branch of the 2020 campaign to reelect the president. That's what I would say. You know, there's a part of me that can see why a Kurt Volker behaved as he did in part. I can see if you've accepted a position in this administration, you kind of understand what hand you're being dealt, right? Because, Mm. again, Donald Trump is what he is. Right. So you tell yourself, I'm going to make the best of the situation. We've seen this over and over again. People saying, I'm going to I'm going to be the hero here. Right. I'm going to serve my country and do the best I can with what I've got. And that's going to require some trade offs. But off I go. And. So I can see believing that the election of President Zelensky in Ukraine is a real opportunity to have an excellent partnership between the United States and Ukraine that makes a difference not only in Ukraine, but in our relationship with Russia. And I can see thinking, okay, the president is stuck on this dumb thing that Giuliani is feeding him. 
Let's just resolve that and get this meeting set up so we can move on. I can see that. But when that aid was withheld from Ukraine, it doesn't make sense to me that the alarm bells didn't go off in a bigger way for more people. It's a little bit comforting that they did go off. We just didn't hear about it for Fiona Hill, for John Bolton, for former Ambassador Yovanovitch. But I, I guess I'm just trying to have some grace for the people involved and, and understanding that that there are probably these trade-offs being made every single day in a variety of ways that we aren't aware of. This did seem to just take on a different character than let's pacify the president in service of a greater goal. And, and that's where I think the massive problem is. Well, because I think you have the pacify the president in in terms of a, a larger goal. And let's be real. At this point in the game, the people who were in that camp are largely gone. The Mattises, the Tillersons, the McMasters, even the Gary Cones. OK, they're gone. They They hung as long as they could. And I think Volcker is fairly put in that camp. And what you have left when you see these articles, Pompeo stays longer than anybody else, The especially Sondland. What you have left is the people who are loyal at all cost. Sondland was originally a Trump critic, and he so desperately wanted to prove his loyalty, first to get this position and then most certainly to keep it and move up the ranks in the White House, that he was willing to do whatever it took. And so I think that's also true of Secretary of State Pompeo. So what we have left at this point in the Trump presidency is people who are willing to do whatever it takes to be loyal to the president. They're there to serve their own priorities and goals. There's no sense that I can tell of any greater duty or prioritization of public service. I don't think there's anything unfair about what you just said. The question I have is how far that goes, because we've already seen Sondland fold to a subpoena. Right. He could have stuck right. it out and said, I'm not testifying. But when he got that subpoena, he's he's in the chair today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I would not depend on unwavering loyalty from any of these people. I think Pompeo is just in it so deep now. He doesn't really have an option. Yeah, that's what I think, because Sondland seems to be passing the buck to Pompeo, according to sort of initial reports we're hearing right now. So what's going to how far will Mike Pompeo take this? Because he was on the call. He was wrapped up in all this. How far will Rudy Giuliani take this when they start seeing what happened to Michael Cohen is going to happen to them? When will they fold? Yeah, there are no new movies with Donald Trump. We've seen the whole thing. Word. We know exactly how this is going to play out. And I just think you have to step back again and give a lot of credit to Speaker Pelosi for understanding that. The way that this entire effort has shaped up has has drawn out the worst of Donald Trump. And I think she knew that would happen. The timing of it is really difficult because there are only 20 something days left for Congress to do any work this year. But Politico this morning said there's an air of inevitability, like an expectation that he will be impeached by Thanksgiving and that there will be a trial in the Senate that concludes before Christmas. So we are in 
an accelerated period for sure. Okay. We did it. I don't have anything else from Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do want to just put in a plug here for the Nightly Nuance because things are moving so quickly. And what I think is comforting in this story, and you have to really want to look for it, but what I think is comforting in this story as these career officials testify, it gives you such a window into what our diplomats do every day and what they care about and what their priorities are. And if you are looking for a mostly nonpartisan, truly patriotic group of human beings, getting into these folks whose names you were you were not intended to know but who are coming before the House is is a good way to get that. And so I'm trying really hard to give you some background and perspective on the folks who are testifying on Patreon and also just a kind of check in with where we are in this whole process. So you can find that on our Patreon page, The Nightly Nuance, if you are interested. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer. In my personal opinion, 
and digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. You know, we also had a debate this past week. Twelve Democrats took the stage with CNN and The New York Times, it's the largest number of people who've ever been on a debate stage. It didn't feel enormous to me, though. There was so much made of how many people were going to be there. And I really thought that in terms of managing the stage, the moderators did a really nice job. If you look at how much speaking time each person had, it was much more even than in past debates. And it and I really had that sense all throughout, like, okay, I'm hearing from everybody. I'm getting a sense of everybody. People are getting an opportunity to respond to pretty substantive questions all across the stage. Yeah. I mean, I think there were still pretty big difference between the person who talked the most, who was Senator Warren, I believe, and then the person who talked the least, which I still think was Andrew Yang. It she was talked Tom the Steyer, most. actually. Oh, it was Tom Stiers. So the person who talked the least, it was, was she Tom was Stiers. like 22 minutes or something, and he was like seven minutes, I think. You still saw a big breakdown. There were still like pieces of time that I was like, I don't want to talk about this. Like, I really didn't want to like Kamala Harris a lot. I did not want to talk about kicking t- Trump off Twitter for as long as we did. I thought that was like a really silly thing to try to pin Senator Warren down. But there was lots of attempts to pin Senator Warren down. That's for sure. She really looked like the front runner. Everybody was going after her, but because there were so many people, I think the attacks were pretty blunted. Well, Sarah, you suggested that we just accept the reality of what a debate is and start this conversation by saying who we think won and lost. And so who who would you have declared the winner of this debate? I want to I, I'm have two types of winners based on expectations. So I think Senator Warren still came out well because She did get a lot of attacks, which also meant she got a lot of speaking time. I think particularly the attack on her refusing to say she was going to raise middle class taxes, which I totally understand why she's doing. Um, But she needs to find a better way to say, I know what you want me to say, but I'm not going to say it in a more authentic way because she starts to feel very rehearsed and very like politician like, which is not going to play well against Donald Trump. But I mean, overall, I think she... Um, did well based on expectations. I don't think anybody um, really got after her or made her look bad in, in a really sort of impactful way. Also based on expectations, I think both Klobuchar and Buttigieg really exceeded expectations. I think both of them came out swinging, um, made some impact. Klobuchar got a lot more speaking time than she usually does. Buttigieg got some real moments, I think, that he looked presidential and kind of made that case. So I think both of them came out ahead that at the end of the night as well. Yeah, I think how you define winner is really important here. So if I consider who went in and did what they were probably there to do, I think Buttigieg had the best evening because he was by far, I thought, the most commanding voice in the foreign policy discussion. Yeah. And to be seen as commanding 
is probably exactly what his campaign hoped for. I did not love the whole day after Donald Trump as a theme for him. I think yeah, it seemed I gimmicky. Get that. Yeah. I, I get what he's trying to say once, but when you come back to a theme like that, I think it makes you look a little bit amateurish compared to the rest of the field. So I, I wouldn't have advised him to go in that direction. But overall, I felt like he did what he was there to do. I've been surprised by people comparing him to Julian Castro in the last debates because hmm. I found him more aggressive compared to his normal style. But I didn't find him to be aggressive in that sort of personally attacking people on characteristics like age way that I thought Castro was doing with Joe Biden a couple of debates ago. I don't know. That moment with Beto was pretty intense. It was an intense moment. From you. But I also understood why that rubbed him the wrong way. Um, because I just find, to, I mean, just to be really transparent about it. And, and I think that's important because in a lot of ways, debates are just about kind of what's my sense of these human beings. I find something about O'Rourke pretty disingenuous, and I can see why Buttigieg responded in what felt like a pretty authentic way to me to to being challenged on his his courage and principle as it relates to gun violence. That was, I will say, in Beto's defense, that was another moment of the debate where I was like, why? Anderson Cooper pushing him on the logistics of taking people's AR-15. I'm like, come on. We're so far from that. What he's doing, which is admirable, is pushing the debate, which is what candidates do. I just, there's also a part of me that, especially in the debates, the, hey, you're going to be facing, in theory, I, I mean, I'm feeling like it is likely that Donald Trump doesn't make it to the election, but whatever. Let's, for argument's sake, assume that you're going to be facing Donald Trump in a presidential election, oh, but let's spend this debate talking about the policy specifics of how you're going to deal with this two years in advance. You know, I don't remember anybody trying to pin Donald Trump down on the logistics of building that wall he can't get built. You know, like that, that part really bugs me. It feels like a double standard. It feels like uh, picking apart and trying to to face them off against each other when it's just completely unrealistic based on what we can expect from discussions or debates or social media controversies in a pro in a general election against Donald Trump. I saw that question from Anderson Cooper differently. I thought it was a great question because I don't think it means, hey, you shouldn't do this. But I think it is. It's kind of like the question put to Elizabeth Warren about taxes. Let's let's square with people on what the process looks like to get these things done. Because if you're going to have a mandatory buyback, it does seem to me that you need to know who has a gun. And doesn't that mean that a gun registry is step one? And shouldn't we be open and honest with people about that? I think on your bigger picture point, I totally agree. I don't understand what the goal is of these debates yeah. because most of them have spent so much time on the ins and outs of healthcare policy. And again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's Congress's job. Like, I get that we want to know what these folks have as their vision, but this is Congress's job. And so why do we go so deep in the weeds on that? But if we aren't fleshing out policy differences, what are we doing? And I kind of talked myself in circles about this because there's a part of me that feels so critical of this format in so many ways. I also did in this debate, though, 
feel like I got a pretty healthy sense of who these people are as people and what their strengths are and where they basically land on policy that was helpful to me. So for all my criticism, I walked away thinking, I don't know, maybe this is just fine. Maybe this does what it's intended to do. That's an internal debate I've been having, too, because for better or for worse, whether we think it's great for our democracy or terrible for our democracy, many, many people do not sort through the particulars of a candidate's policy proposals before selecting their preferred candidate. Okay, like it just it's not how it works. (laughs) And so. To me, I think that's why the town halls appeal to you. And I think that's why I think you make a good case that that's really where let's just see what they're about. Let's see their personalities and their approaches, um, because that's what is going to really affect people. There's a part of me, too, just because I'm on this horse and I'm just going to beat it till it's dead on Election Day. Like, I would love some questions or like a town hall on how you're running your campaign. Why are you choosing to put staff here? Why are you choosing to spend money here? How do you think, what do you think it means for your candidacy, Tom Steyer, if you're having to just spend millions of dollars to get your name out there? Like, wouldn't it be nice to really, because how they run their campaign is how they're going to run the White House. And so I think it would be fascinating to like, really piece that apart because that's another thing. It's like their personalities, but their personalities are conveyed to the voters through their approach to campaigning. And I would love like more questions about that and more pushing them on issues they're having to respond to on the fly again, because that's what they're going to have to do as president. I think they let the impeachment line of inquiry go too soon. I thought Joe Biden had a truly terrible response to the question about his son, which he has had weeks to prepare for. And so just stuff like that, I wish we could lean into that aspect of the questioning because I think it's really revelatory in a way that, oh, let's just piece apart the particulars of how we're going to take people's AR-15s away is not. This is why I struggle with Elizabeth Warren coming out on top because I think Elizabeth Warren is clearly masterful in terms of how she describes her policy positions. When I think about what the job of president is, I don't see her excelling in the categories that actually fall within the responsibility of the president. So when it comes to foreign policy, I never find her impressive. I thought her trade responses were strangely vague, given how how much I know she knows about these topics. And then in terms of just interacting with other people on stage, I thought one of the more damaging things that happened for her. And listen, I know a lot of y'all love Elizabeth Warren and and I respect you for that. And I respect Elizabeth Warren. I'm just thinking about how does this all play out in the long term? And part of the reason she's not my candidate, I, I thought it was telling that there's not a lot of warmth for her among the other candidates. And it seemed particularly revealed from Senator Klobuchar, who I think means it when she says, hey, just because it's not your idea doesn't mean it's a valid idea. That's a sense that I've had about Senator Warren for a long time, that she's so certain about where she is that there's not a lot of room for anybody else. 
And I really appreciated Senator Klobuchar giving voice to that because I feel that pretty deeply. And I do think the president needs to be someone who can engender the kind of warmth that Elizabeth Warren generates with people who totally agree with her among a broader group. See, I thought that was a very effective line, but I also felt Senator Klobuchar's I don't know if warmth's the right way, but I thought the way she kept calling her Elizabeth was indicative of like, we have a relationship. I do like you. I think you're smart and capable, but you cannot act like your idea is the only idea. But let's be real. Do we not think that do we not think Klobuchar feels this like people feel the same way about her? I bet they do. Oh, I'm sure. It's funny that you say that because I read the first names from Klobuchar in that same way. Like, we have relationships, we're colleagues. But I think a lot of people read that as being purposefully disrespectful. So that's kind of an oh, interesting, yeah. it, just how we view these things is so different based on kind of where we're coming from as we walk into the room. I mean, I've said it before and I've said it again. I'm 100% confident that like her and Kamala and Kirsten and every other female senator have a group text. I know this to be true. I believe it to be true. So I I definitely didn't read that that way. I, I, di- I still thought that line was effective. You know, thinking about her, I've been thinking about something more generally, which is can a president be good at foreign policy and be good at domestic policy at the same time? I wonder if FDR is not the behemoth that he is because he is seen as having such strength in both places, largely due to the impact of history and historical events. But You know, I think as you look back, Johnson had such a focus on domestic policy that he really neglected foreign policy that you see. I was reading Barbara Bush's biography written by Susan Page, who we're interviewing um, at our live show on Saturday. And she talks about how George Herbert Walker Bush was just so focused on foreign policy that he let domestic policy slide. And, you know, I don't think there's any debate that Elizabeth Warren's strength and I can imagine a strength that only gets stronger as she is out on the campaign trail engaging with voters who are, by and large, going to be motivated and impacted by and emotional about domestic policy and just her history on income inequality and bankruptcy and consumer protection. Like That's her, that's her strength. I would like to see her, because maybe the answer is that they can't be good on both, And so they need to recognize that and speak to how they're going to shore that up to she could definitely do that with the right vice presidential pick. Right. But I think that's that's hard. I I, mean, I don't know if there's somebody that's I don't think there's anybody on that stage who I feel is just killing it on both fronts, who speaks on domestic and foreign policy with with equal authority and impact. And I don't know if. Short of wartime, you'll ever see the American people prioritizing foreign policy, even though, you know, based on what we talked about in the first section of the show, it is insanely important in this election. So I I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't think you're wrong about her. I would love to hear for her sort of just acknowledge that and speak to it. But I think she gets better when she's engaging face to face with voters about issues. And I'm not surprised. But that's not coming up in Iowa and New Hampshire. The problem is that foreign policy and domestic policy are merging 
and are going to continue to merge more and more into the future, I think, because foreign policy isn't just how do we use our military? It's trade policy and it's it's trade policy is directly connected to what's happening in our economy and how we approach our trade deals is very much going to impact issues like income inequality that are her bread and butter. Right. And so I I think you are absolutely right looking through the lens of history. And I also think the lens of the future, that distinction is going to wither. I think it'll always be there to some extent, but a lesser degree. And and I would like to hear more about that. To your point about how are we going to, because because no one human being is going to be good at all aspects of being the president. I think a great question, in addition to how are you running your campaign, is tell me about your staff and tell me about your advisors and who on your team is is really filling a gap that you have and tell tell us how you work together. Because that, yeah. to me, it gets to how am I going to function as the supervisor of the executive branch? And that, to me, the way she, you know, you can't argue that her campaign is surging largely because she is running such a good campaign. And I would like to hear more about, like, her campaign manager and her social media team and all these people and why they are approaching things differently. But, you know, I think that 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 like her fundraising, her polling, all these things are, you know, pushing her to the top because she's making really good decisions about how to run the campaign. I would like to hear so much more about that. And when you have someone like Kamala Harris you know, scrapping everything and starting over, that makes me very, very nervous. I totally agree with you about how well Elizabeth Warren is running her campaign. The The problem for me, in addition to just like having a fundamentally different vi- vision of what the government should be than Elizabeth Warren has, but the, the problem for me is I don't yet see how Elizabeth Warren's command of policy and data excellent management of a campaign staff translate to I can lead people who are not in lockstep with me on policy. Because it does seem to me on the debate stage and off it that the ideas that are not her ideas, she has decided, don't have a place. And I I would like to see what does a general election Elizabeth Warren do differently than this primary election Elizabeth Warren? I see what you're saying, but I think in other aspects, you you see her adapting to the general election. That's why she's not answering that question. And I think that's a mistake. You know, an increase like that's why. Now, will she adapt to that? I hope so. I But there's also a part of me that's like, I get why she's doing that. If the choice is between give them tape of her saying, I'm going to raise taxes or not, then go with no. You know, I don't I but I think she has to find a different approach. But I do think you see her realizing what plays and what doesn't in a more general election format and adapting accordingly. So I want to know, as we move on to losers, how you felt about Booker's performance, because I think he might be I think he might be one of my losers for the debate. I, I love him and I like it when he gets on his sort of talking points, but they are. They felt they felt particularly disjointed in this debate. I think the trouble for him in this debate was that he was often the last person to answer the same question that had been asked of others. And so he sounded unoriginal or like he was picking up on other people's points 
pretty often. I also kind of feel about what he did the way I felt about Buttigieg. When you have a refrain, yeah. it doesn't work mm-hmm. for me. And his refrain of, listen, we're we're really running against Donald Trump, not each other, I think is true and important and grounding in some circumstances. And I also think he did it too many times yeah, to make the most of the opportunity he had there. I did think he was very good. And I do believe him when he talks. And I think he has a broader command of issues than a lot of people on the stage. I really like how he reframes questions. You know, he'll get a question about whatever tired topic we've been through a hundred times and say, wait a second, we haven't talked at all about child poverty. I mean, I think he has a really, really important perspective. And he is still my choice of the stage. Buttigieg made progress with me in this debate, but I, I think overall... I would feel more comfortable with Booker as the nominee. Listen, if if this is a nominee running against Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for whoever it is. It's going to be hard in a lot of cases, but I will vote for that person. But but if I were really saying this is who I would like to see be the next president, it is for sure Cory Booker. So I am in his camp. I do not think this was his best performance. For sure. For me, the the worst performance came from Joe Biden in this debate, though. And it's not close. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once-daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want 
want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. I mean, if you read the transcript of his answers, they are difficult to follow. They're most certainly difficult to follow as you listen to them. My issue with Biden in this debate is that I think he demonstrated a very unhealthy relationship with power and authority. Mm-hmm. When he mm-hmm. mentioned Justice Kagan and said, she used to work for me. And he mentioned Gross. John McCain and, also not and said, true. he used to work for me. And then that exchange with Senator Warren about the CFPB. That has been getting so much play and his response on Hunter Biden. I think he looks like someone who never accepts blame and wants credit for everything. And that is the opposite of what I look for in a good leader. I also thought he did the, well, I'll get on the phone with him and we'll have a real conversation. I'll sort it out. And I'm like, do you think that is what anyone is looking for right now? I am certainly not looking for that. Well, that sounds exactly like Donald Trump. Exactly. The first person who says, I will fully staff and empower the State Department is going to get all the applause from Sarah Stewart Holland. And and that was a great question. The question that provoked that answer was a great question. Will you put troops back in Syria? I mean, that was a really important question because that's where the rubber meets the road on all of this. And he should have been the person best equipped to answer that. And the fact that he just said, well, I'm going to pick up the phone and work this out. It, it, it was bad. It was really bad. I thought also that question and the debate between Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg, both veterans, was really powerful. I think she's real problems on this issue, particularly the fact that she met with Bashar al-Assad and still really doesn't speak out against him when he is a war criminal is problematic. But she, the you know, I thought Pete Buttigieg handled that incredibly well and looked incredibly presidential in saying, you're not being honest about what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a forever war. We're not talking about regime change. We're talking about keeping the global peace. And listen, just watching two people who've actually served in our United States military, one a gay man and one a woman of color was like, I'm here for this. I am here for this. It was a really good debate. There were several moments where I thought, We should talk about this more. Why are we moving on so quickly? One of those came when Andrew Yang brought up data privacy. I was really disturbed that the moderators flew right past that when he said, hey, one of the most important things that we can be doing economically and to deal with tech companies is to say that we own our data. You don't. And I wanted them to really press into that. That, to me, is where Andrew Yang comes across as this incredibly compelling figure who's saying something important. It's coming from a different lens than a legislator. And I wanted to hear more of that. 
And why was the audience so offended at his dig at Bing? This is another question I have from this debate. Why were y'all so sensitive about Bing? Nobody uses Bing. It was funny. That was funny. That was a funny moment. I also loved it when he promised to sell or share his data with Elizabeth Warren. It warmed my heart. Well, and I actually thought that was one of the friendliest exchanges I've seen her have mm-hmm. with anybody else. You know, where where it for a moment she kind of became a little bit more of a person who could hear something that is at odds with her plan. And I think he has a, a really interesting and compelling argument about universal basic income as opposed to strengthening Social Security. I don't think her response on that is very strong. And I think that response on Social Security illustrates what, to me, is so problematic about many of her plans, because here we have a system that is very important that so many people depend on. And I've grown up my entire life believing I will never get any Social Security because I don't have confidence in the solvency of that system rolling into the future. And I don't want to feel that way about my health care or any, you know, my college tuition or any of the other things that she's proposing. So I would like to hear more of that debate play out as well. Well, and I think the other thing to remember, and I think this is probably true of her and Bernie, who we haven't talked about, who I do think did a good job expectation wise, considering this was his first debate after his heart attack of meeting expectations and even exceeding them. But with her, you know, I think to say, you know, how she's going to respond to other people, you have to take into account that she was walking onto that stage probably like with all the armor on. Every single report, every single pundit, every single analysis had said everybody's going to come for Warren because she's the front runner. And they did. And so, you know, we've seen other people, including Joe Biden, get incredibly defensive when they're in that position. And I mean, I don't think that she was... Warm, but I, don't, I think you can't blame her. It's not like she could have rolled out there and been like, everybody's going to attack me. So the first person that does, I'm going to say, yeah, you had a really good point. Let's talk about that. Like that, she couldn't have done that because she would have just they would have pounced even more than they already were. What's strange to me for her is that I think Senator Sanders, I, I totally disagree with on like 90 percent of topics. And I really value that he just is who he is. And we'll just say, yes, going to raise taxes. It's going to be better for you. And that's how we get there. And I don't understand why she is calibrating more carefully than that when he really had a great run in 2016 using that style. I also really appreciate about Senator Sanders the way he is always the first to say, I am not going to attack my opponent about that. Like, I Mm -hmm. thought he handled the issue with Joe Biden better than Joe Biden handled it. Yeah. Well, I think part of the answer to that, and I've really come to Jesus on this, is a huge proportion of Bernie Sanders' support comes from people who are not Democrats, who will not vote for anybody but Bernie, might not vote at all if it's not Bernie. So I do think that his his base of support gives him a little more freedom and also, in fairness to Bernie, he's always been like that. Before he ran for president, he was the guy, I've said this before, always my favorite interview on Diane Reem because he would just roll up in there and say what everybody was thinking. So, I mean, I think that's true to who he is and also, I think, reflective of his base of support, which is just, for better or for worse, not going to go. It's ride or die Bernie. They're not going anywhere else, even to her. 
We are going to talk a little bit more about all of the candidates in Thursday's Nightly Nuance on Patreon. You can find both of us there going into the details of this a little bit more. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. Lord knows what's going to happen between now and Tuesday, but we will be here and and we will be discussing it. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.